My title today is uh, Roots and Wings, Unitarian Christianity. What are our religious roots? For most of us, our personal religious roots come from our childhood experiences of religion with our families. But folks who identify as Unitarian Universalists in this time and place today have a lot of diversity in religious back backgrounds. It's hard to speak of our roots as uh, religious roots as in common. I hope you might be willing to, to bear with me as we demonstrate how diverse we are. For example, in most congregations, there are very few cradle adult Unitarians who began attending Unitarian Universalist churches as children. How many of you were in this room were raised Unitarian Universalist? Not one. That's the way it is. Hardly any. How about folks who were raised in Catholic church? I know one. There's a bunch of us. Okay. There are usually a lot of former Catholics, particularly in New England UU churches where there's some alienation from the priesthood right now and some divergence about beliefs. How many were raised as Protestants? Yep, a good significant number. That would include my own experience in both Southern Baptist and Southern Methodist churches because one of my parents was one and one was the other. How about folks raised Jewish? Well, a few, okay. And um, my wife Nina was raised both as a Catholic by her observant parents, even though her mother's ethnic heritage was 100% Central European Ashkenazi Jewish. Anyone whose family didn't have a religious identity before you came here? A few. Yeah. In the 21st century, more and more folks come to Unitarian Universalism without religious upbringing. They're seeking meaning in their lives, hoping to find community support, especially when they're raising children. I like to think that a good number of those folks are trying to find a place which will nurture their spiritual identities and growth, a good place to put down roots that will matter so that they might bloom and prosper and become more whole in themselves. Many of us know the history stories of how the Enlightenment changed Christian thought, how the original Unitarians and Universalists in their movements in America arose from the insistence of some scholars, beginning with the Harvard Divinity School, based on European research, that the Bible had virtually no reference to the divinity of Jesus himself, and the references that did exist were inconsistent and questionable about the possibility of eternal punishment or hell for sinners. Surely we also know that the truth is that most of the founders and early leaders of the new republic in America in the late 18th century were themselves deists or Unitarian Christians. Over the first 50 years or so after the Declaration of Independence, many Universalists who denied the necessity of hell joined together to form a Universalist Convention in states and also in the Universalist Convention of America uh, joined together so that they would have some commonality. And the Unitarian ministers who had questioned the parity of Jesus with God had formed their Unitarian, I'm sorry, the American Unitarian Association. But it was only 166 years ago this week, on May 19, 1841, that one Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, took a really big risk 
to give a sermon at an ordination on what he personally believed and what he thought Unitarianism would be and how it would grow uh, toward in a future that was hard to see. He was already on the cutting edge of the abolitionist movement and soon became well known for sheltering runaway slaves in his home in Boston as a matter of principle. But his big risk on that day was to publicly declare his insistence that the belief in many of the stories about Jesus was irrelevant to the essence of Christian religion. You know those stories, how Jesus was born of a virgin and resurrected after being crucified. His many supernatural miracles like healing the sick with a touch, raising the dead by calling to their corpses, turning water into wine. All those stories, he said, as Jefferson had said before him, were not at the core of the enduring importance of the message that Jesus brought to humanity. Of course, Jefferson had suffered the outrageous slings and fortunes through the political campaigns that had called him unchristian. And so Theodore Parker, as a minister, was taking a big risk in conservative Boston to say things like this in public. Parker believed and said very clearly that the essential truths of all religions, especially what he termed Unitarian Christianity, were actually illustrated in the ordinary words and actions of Jesus and others, like in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus had called upon his followers to respect and serve our fellow beings as the essential commandment to be connected with the essential divinity of us all. The only way to honor God, however one might conceive of that, is through our connection with each other as children of God, as equal brothers and sisters, as in the reading from 1 John. Parker's sermon, which he called The Transient and Permanent in Christianity, was printed and distributed widely throughout the United States, and it made him a pariah to most of the ministers of Boston who excluded him from their meetings and marginalized his reputation as a minister. Eventually, Parker decided to leave his own church to become a lecturer, and he was no longer acknowledged as a Unitarian minister in their uh, publications, as um, the Unitarian ministers were all listed in this particular annual um, yearbook. But he found a greater public response to his common-sense presentation of his thoughts in a new congregation, which he called the 28th Congregation of Boston. He formed with thousands of those who agreed with his perspectives and showed up in multitudes to hear what he had to say. What Parker and before him and with him, Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and others, and a handful of other outrageous ministers and thinkers realized even in that time, was that Christianity and religion generally, generally, and Unitarians and Universalists specifically, must do is to be attentive to intellectual thought, but also to the larger society, and to be attentive to what they found to be the ultimate truths which endured beyond their time, and which will have endured into our time. I could further trace the history for you, but I want to move to another story which may be more helpful. 
When Nina told me that she wanted to tell her story about the little red shoes this morning, it reminded me of one of my own stories about the shoes which I chose to wear today. These shoes, which I'll come out here to let you see, are called Alden. And on the, on the sole of the shoes, there's actually, they have printed their name very prominently, Alden Shoes. And they're made by a little factory in, Mid in Middleborough, Massachusetts, which is in the middle, turns out, of the cranberry growing country of Massachusetts. It's only about 20 miles from Plymouth, and it's sort of an anomaly at these days to have a, a factory that makes shoes in the United States. It used to be that Brockton and Massachusetts and the area surrounding that, which is close to Middleborough, was the world headquarters for making shoes and boots. And before that, they also made uh, horse harnesses and things like that. But uh, they, they, their leather products were world-renowned because if you wanted a good shoe, you wanted a Boston shoe. Uh, even though it wasn't made in Boston, it was made out there 25 miles from Boston. But uh, nowadays, over 90% of the shoes that are bought and sold in the United States are made in factories in China and elsewhere, where labor is cheap and machines can do a lot of the work. But uh, this factory which was uh, formed in, in 1884 by Charles Alden, harken, harkens back to the pilgrims. You may remember that John Alden was one of the original pilgrims. He had this thing going uh, where Miles Standish, who was the soldier protecting the colony of the, of the pilgrims, asked him to speak to Priscilla about his uh, wanting to marry Priscilla and then he went to uh, Priscilla and said, uh, I speak for Miles Standish. And she said, speak for thyself, John. Uh, so those of us who remember that story, it goes back a long way to 1622 or so. But isn't it amazing that this factory from 1884 with roots in the pilgrims is still going and still making shoes? I bought this particular pair of shoes in 1999 almost 18 years ago. They are not quite as comfortable as when I bought them because I don't wear them often. My feet change, as Nina was saying. They've grown in certain ways that wouldn't have been predictable back then. But they still fit early in the day, like right now. Um, toward the late afternoon and evening, maybe not so comfortable. But I remember when I bought these shoes because... I was in Madison, Wisconsin to preach an installation sermon for a friend from seminary. I didn't have a car, and I had walked about 10 blocks from the place I was staying to look around in Madison a little bit. And after I'd walked about eight blocks on those city streets and sidewalks, I began to notice that my cheap shoes were worn out and didn't really fit for walking that far. They weren't sturdy. So when I noticed a sign for Jack's Shoe Store on State Street across from the Capitol, I decided I should go in and look around and see if I could get another pair of cheap shoes to start over. I don't know about you, but back then I would go into the shoe section of a department store and look at a half dozen styles that appealed to me. Sometimes I'd go into a, 
a mall and, and into a shoe store and look around. But then I would, when I decided there was a style and a price that seemed appropriate, then I would flag down a salesperson, as Nina described, and ask them to go into the back and bring me a couple of pairs in my size. And I would pick a pair that seemed to fit the best, but happened to be usually the cheapest or the biggest markdown in the price. But in this Jack's shoe store, that didn't happen as I expected. I had no privacy. I was in the store for less than two minutes when a middle-aged salesman came up to greet me. Right away, he began asking me questions which seemed different from what I expected. First, he said, are you looking for anything specifically, or could I show you several kinds of shoes? That didn't seem that strange. The next thing he asked me, I'd never heard anybody ask, what kind of work do you do? Where will you wear these shoes? Will you wear them all day, every day, or only for special times or occasions? Very interesting, appropriate questions for shoes, but you don't think about it that way, or I didn't. I don't want to know what size you usually wear, he said, because I would like to take several measurements so I can make sure you get the best fit possible. Not just the width or the length of your foot, but also the width of your heel. He wanted to know that. Altogether, this man spent close to an hour with me for me to buy one pair of shoes, carefully measuring each of my feet, telling me lots of details about the different types of shoes he brought to me as he tried fitting me with at least a dozen different styles, chatting freely with me about the necessity not only for the right shoe, but for the right socks. He said, it won't matter if I get you a good fit on your shoes if you don't wear good socks. Not just socks that feel good right now, but that will be durable, that will last. And when he came to these Alden shoes, he was almost referential in how he handled them, gently using his metal shoehorn to ease them onto my feet, explaining that these shoes with proper care could serve me well for daily wear to work over a decade or more, unlike most of the cheap imported shoes, which would normally last less than a year. And he mentioned that this factory in Massachusetts offered a very unusual service. At least I'd never heard of it. When the shoes show excessive wear, they expect you to send them back to be renewed for complete replacement of the soles and heels according to their specification with the original equipment equivalents because they felt the basic structure of the shoes which they had devoted their attention to designing and producing should last for a generation or more if those shoes were properly cared for. I will confess to you that his professionalism and expertise made the sale and the shoes and several pairs of socks which he recommended seemed to be the best possible decision for me even though the credit card charge was well more than twice what I had planned to spend that day. But it was only as he rang up the sale on his newfangled computer cash register and he handed me an old-fashioned customer contact card to fill out by hand for me to fill out so that he could put me on his mailing list that I discovered that my salesman, among six or eight in the store, was Jack, the owner of the store. He had a proprietary interest. 
in not only making the sale, he made what was usually a superficial interaction memorable for me because he was willing to take the time to get to know me, to determine with me, with my engagement, what I needed and what I really wanted from a pair of shoes. A respectable pair of shoes that looked pretty good, but that had enduring quality and that reflected my best self. For several years, I got postcards from Jack, Jack's shoe store in Madison, Wisconsin, while I'm living in Augusta, Georgia, as the minister there. He was announcing special sales, but he was maintaining contact. In case I wanted to order something by mail, he was willing to send it to me and take it back if it didn't work. And I understand that during the 50 years he was in business there in downtown Madison, his store was a local landmark. You go to the Capitol, you turn right, it's four, houses, four stores down. In 2010, when he finally decided to retire after he had a heart attack, the Daily Newspaper printed a feature story of their interview with Jack. He said he had accumulated a customer contact list with several thousand names. But more importantly, the reporter said he was proud of his personal memory of about a thousand regular customers who regularly came in with their families, not only their spouses, but their children and into the next generation of grandchildren. So when he retired, he sold all of his inventory, started over. His, uh, he was able to sell his store and the goodwill that was with it to two of his best employees who, as far as I know, are still carrying on his legacy today, uh, nearly 20 years after I was there. What does this have to do with Unitarian Christianity? Well, the evolution that we know about of the Unitarian Universalist Association and its predecessors, the Unitarian uh, American Unitarian Association and the Universalist uh, Church of America, is that the variation in faith traditions, the foundational beliefs, came to be uh, discarded. That it became they both congregational um, universalists and Unitarians dispensed with anything other than the generic statements about faith. They became non-credal. In other words, it didn't matter what you believed, but that you were affirming that you wanted to be in covenant with other human beings, that you wanted to be in relationship, and that the relationship founded on agreed principles and values was much more important than the belief structure about Jesus, about God, about theology in general. What we have come to know as Unitarianism is still a variant of Judeo-Christian thought. But it's founded on not only the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Testament, and the Christian New Testament, but also the, the writings of inspired human beings from time immemorial, including the Hindu Vedas and the Buddhist Sutras and the Jewish Torah and all the other faith traditions of our world. We are more about how we are in relationship with each other, how we fit together, and how our 
sense of community helps us to grow. And we may have to discard choose. And we may have to discard some of our own beliefs as we become more spiritually mature. And sometimes, I will confess, we are not maintaining our shoes as the manufacturer might have preferred. I used to, when I wore these shoes all the time, I used to shine them about once a week on Saturdays so that they would look good on Sunday and especially on Monday through Friday when I wore them to work because I was being judged by people I worked with if my shoes weren't in good condition. That reflected on my character. <laughs> believe it or not, that's still the case in the Air Force and the Army, I believe. If you don't have shiny shoes, you are not respected. As a matter of fact, you are sent home and you have to shine your damn shoes, I believe. You, you lose your pay for the day, things like that. And when I was in court, I, if the judge had seen that I was wearing shabby shoes, I think I think the, the, the judge would have thought badly of me. But these shoes have, have been sitting in a corner for a long time because they're heavy and they, they feel a little clunky. But, you know, they are great support. They have steel shanks because they're well made. And Unitarian Universalism, our Unitarian faith, is about having a great foundation that we continue to build on. And it's there for us, and it'll be good for us, and it'll be good for our children and our grandchildren if we occasionally go to the trouble of putting it on and wearing it and showing it and even polishing it up a little bit, a little preventative maintenance, a little shining it up, will tell people that we value our shoes and our faith. And that's what I think the essential story of today is, is that Unitarian Universalism, not just Unitarian Christianity as it has evolved, is not a story just of history. It's a story of the future, and it's a story of the present, and it's a story about continuing to be engaged and allowing ourselves to grow. And if the shoes don't fit anymore, continue to adapt our faith to fit us, to fit our society, and to make this world a better place for all of us. Being engaged, being alert, being relational like Jack and Jack's shoe store is the key to having a faith that we can hand down to the next generation. And that, I think, is the lesson from Theodore Parker. And that, I think, is something we can take home and not just put on a shelf, but wear every day. Blessed be. Thank you for your attention today. Our closing song today is one I think you might know. It's number 123, Spirit of Life. I'd ask us, I understand your old tradition, which we have not honored much this past year while I've been in the pulpit, is one of joining hands and singing Spirit of Life. When I first arrived in the Augusta congregation, that was something they did every Sunday. It was a tradition that needs to be honored, at least sometimes.